One of the reasons we succeeded in the early days, despite being first-time founders, is we just used up everything we had. And that came to a head in an investor board meeting where I said I was going to do something, I just hadn't done it. There was this one chat where we were trying to figure out what my role going forward would be. And Ian, who is my best mate, just stopped me and was just like, you don't have to be at this company anymore. And I was like, oh, all right, maybe I should leave. And it was the, absolutely the right call. Today, we're in a rather different location. We're recording this episode from a houseboat on the Grand Union Canal in central London. Who on earth lives on a houseboat in central London, you may ask? Well, none other than startup entrepreneur and team builder, co-founder of the awesome Song Kick and Silicon Milk Roundabout, Mr. Pete Finlay, formerly known as Pete Smith, formerly known as, well, Prince, R.I.P. Having graduated from Cambridge in 2005, Pete Finlay went on to become the co-founder of Songkick in 2007, alongside Michelle Yu and Ian Hogarth. If you haven't heard of Songkick, it's the largest concert discovery service in the world. No starting small for Pete. The idea for Songkick could be traced back to Pete's habit of throwing summer festivals in his back garden during his uni years. He's quoted as saying that he grew up in the middle of nowhere with a big backyard, perfect opportunity to make lots of noise and, of course, experiment with sourcing music. I mean, he could have just stopped there. But not content with his success, Pete went on to create Silicon Milk Roundabout, the best free tech jobs fair and recruitment events for startups. Pete created this to face the challenge fledgling entrepreneurs find when it comes to hiring the right people. In a traditional, bigger corporate company, you'd be involved in hiring a lot later down the line than in a startup. So Silicon Milk Roundabout helped showcase the skill set of young entrepreneurs. But, you know, that in itself has gone through a tough journey, as you'll come to hear. One of the pioneers of the London startup scene, specifically Tech City in East London, welcome to today's awesome guests and, yes, his dog. So Pete... To break the ice, are you ready for our quick fire round? I'm ready. So in a world where there is no song kick, favourite music product? I have to say Glastonbury. Oh, interesting. Because I thought, I think concerts themselves are the best music products. Okay, so live experiences yeah. and therefore Glastonbury is your favourite. Glastonbury is just tip top. I think Glastonbury is my favourite too. Um, favourite band? Maybe Nirvana. Maybe? Mm. Who else? Uh, well, I thought of like some of the old greats like uh, Louis Armstrong and Aretha Franklin as well. Um, as and point. then like my my like 90s little nexus of Pearl Jam, Lemonheads, Nirvana. So Fleetwood Mac? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Straight yeah. me as a Fleetwood Mac guy. Yeah. Favourite song? I'm just not going to answer that one. Oh, just really? can't be dumb. I tried and I just can't. I can't do it. App you're using most on your phone right now? Uh, I'm using an app called Marco Polo, which uh, is you send little video messages to each other back and forth, which I think it's for millennials. Okay. I use it with all my friends who've got children and catch up with their like babies' lives. It's quite fun. So what is it? Like Instagram stories kind of, but just for like a direct set of friends? It's it's Yeah, well, you can do like groups, like WhatsApp groups, and you're just like pinging back videos to each other. Okay. And they're not hosted on your phone, so you, you, you stream them, but you can see the history of the streams so yep. and go back and watch these little videos. It's quite cool. Yeah, fair Check enough. Um, operating your own vibe or advising and mentoring others to build their dreams? I like both, but I definitely get more from doing my own thing. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, most inspirational person in the world to you? Maybe it's going to be just as a group, like some of those astronauts that, that just like balls to the wall, went to the moon and stuff. That group of, of people mm. and everybody that kind of backed them through that process, they were they were like doing something that was really just unbelievably dangerous and extraordinary. I mean, on the topic, have you ever heard that, um, you know, inspirational team building quote that when they went to the space station back in the day, 
um, at Houston and they were like, you know, this is what a mission feels like. So they yeah. went and asked everyone what they do. So they go and ask the janitor, what do you do? Mm. So I'm helping put people on the moon. That's awesome. That's yeah. like I mission. think that whole thing, I mean, there's a wicked TV series called From the Earth to the Moon, which is a dramatization of the mm. space race. And, and it drives into all these different areas of, of NASA and how they got there and all this kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. And everyone's just so hyped up for it. Yeah. Mission driven um houseboat life or you know normal uh, i've got to move off this thing at some point oh yeah yeah well like i don't think you can have more than like a couple of young you kids on it how long um, have you been in this one? we've been doing it for about five years and i do have this idea where we could create like a pop top bedroom for the kids above right. our bedroom yeah um like a camper van yeah but i think even that is starting to get into the realm of like we got to get a flat, really. Yeah. So I guess point. at some point you stop being that like, oh, it's quite cool. Pete does that to like, oh, don't go see that weirdo. He's got like <laughs> that weird bunk bed for his kids up there. Um, yeah. Right. Let's get straight into it. So every story starts with a backstory. What's yours? You are now Pete Finley. So who was Pete Smith? Uh, I grew up near Bedford, near Rich, I think, um, and was one of five kids, had pretty, pretty lovely childhood, had lovely houses and gardens and adventures and things like that, and uh, had a, a wicked group of friends growing up. Um, we're all still top friends, um, probably a group of like six, seven guys and two or three girls that we're all just like incredibly good friends, all for our teens. Still friends? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, and then uh, uni, went to Cambridge, did law and dragged my heels a bit. Took like a gap year and then I took another gap year and then I took another gap year. And what was your uni? I took a gap year before, during and then after right. and and was still kind of dragging my heels uh, into my mid-twenties and not really doing much with my life. And is that because you just didn't like academia or what? Um, I don't know really. I think I love travelling, so I was always going travelling and whenever I got like the, you know, like a chink of like overdraft i'd be like right cool let's buy flights to thailand yeah. or something like that yeah. and um i remember going to see my bank manager and getting like a, a third overdraft and things like that and well at least you're doing original things like going to thailand was exactly cool. yeah i mean at the time nobody was going to thailand man. there was like only, can only imagine. five million british yeah. teenagers there. it's about the same time the beach came out right so <laughs> Yeah. yeah, kind of ruined yeah, that. Yeah, I discovered that, but I, that was quite a small book until I read it, and I told everyone about it. And then... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so from your backyard to helping people find Beyonce, we're here to hear the story, obviously, of Song Kicks. So, where does the journey actually begin? Well, Ian and I, so Ian, co founder at Song Kicks, so he and I had been best mates at uni and had always said, we want to start a company together. Um, we didn't know what that company was going to be, but we thought we would go away, do some work, learn about how to be professionals and learn from people who knew more about business and work than we did. And then cycle back in a few years time and be like, right, we're ready. We've learned what we need to learn. Let's start business. And was he going away the same time as you or did he just do his three straight years? He did his, he was doing engineering. So we graduated at the same time. Then he went off and did a year and a half for Bain as a management consultant. And I was, I'm going to say drifting is a bit strong. Like I didn't, I, I did law and I had figured out pretty much immediately that I didn't want to do corporate law as a career. Um, and that actually, like, bizarrely, you do law at a top university, you'd think it it gives you loads of options. It does give you loads of options. But in your, but actually, in the moment, it feels like in the crucible of, like, everybody getting their training contracts and going off and joining, like, Clifford Chance and stuff, you actually feel a bit, like, shiftless and, and unanchored because everybody else is like, I know what I'm doing in my life. And you're like, I, I don't, I don't want, all you know is you don't want that. So I reacted quite 
quite, you know, I sort of bucked against that, went and worked for like a little immigration law firm in Hackney and and just, and then I ended up working for my dad's company as a salesman for about like maybe about a year. Um, he's an entrepreneur and he's been running his business for, for, for about 25 years and um, like a successful software consultancy. And, and so I was, I, I was sort of feeling my way out of corporate law, which was, almost presented as like the only thing you would ever want to do if you did law at Cambridge. Yeah. I remember being like this, you know, four or five months from graduating and everybody just being like, well, what training contract did you get? And I'd yeah. be like, I don't have one. And they'd look at you with this kind of pity and sort of... Surely you just say, I'm just going to go fake one in Thailand. <laughs> right. Um, so whose idea was Sunkit? How did you guys all meet? Because there's a third co-founder in the mix as yeah. well, right? And then like, what was the actual original proposition? Like how far did you stroll from that first idea so we were a couple of years out of uni and ian calls me up and he said i'm done i hate my job i'm not learning anymore like i don't think i've been speaking to people who run companies and they've all said the same it's like you learn on the job let's just quit our jobs and do it and we pretty much did like i took another couple of months to to fully like commit to it but we both quit and just started working without an idea and like not we had a bit of savings, but it was more just like, right, let's crack on because, uh, you know, we'll just do this. So Ian was the impetus and I jumped on board and we didn't have an idea. So we started pinging back ideas um, with this big word doc, which we probably still got somewhere. There was just random ideas, like really, um, some of them really good and probably... X for Y, etc. Well, yeah, except there wasn't many X's at that point. Yeah, there so wasn't was many like, Uber or Tinder. You know, it was like 2000, early 2007. So yeah. a lot of the models had, uh, and a lot of the models had failed actually. So it was like, you know, you don't want to be friends there because like, you know, and then there's this upstart Facebook that like actually all your friends are using, but it's not for people who weren't at this uni and all this kind of stuff. So there weren't that many models, but we did have like a whole bunch of ideas like well anyway they would they would probably made a bunch of people what was your worst idea um, i think the idea that i would have disliked doing the most was this like capacity mapping in chinese factories so that you could get stuff created you know in the seven week window when this factory was like changing around its flooring or something you could use this space or spare capacity or something i would just i would have hated to travel i think that would have been a terrible idea yeah, okay probably is, is a great idea so you had a list of um ideas that you were probably never going to do but they were ideas mm-hmm. so that was kind of your process yeah and then i think ian was in singapore because we he was still in, stuck in singapore until the end of the tax year he got hammered for for, for tax so he and he was on a he was drunk chatting to this guy late at night and this guy was just going on and on about like music and how great it was and Ian and me and um and you know most of our friends love music and live music and then Ian called me and was like let's do something in music because it's going to be much more fun than yeah. this other stuff we're batting around um so we created this massive spreadsheet basically of all the existing and startup plays in music and like what were they trying to tackle who were the users what were the revenue model all this kind of stuff so it was a very like process driven period of idea creation yeah. and eventually zeroed in on live as growing sector not being disrupted in fact being strengthened by the by the redu- reduction in revenue of uh, recorded music and mm. um and in in particular you know the rise of the ipod and i and not the iphone at that point but the ipod and mp3s made it very accessible to get people's music collections at the time so it was a itunes plugin that zipped in what you'd listen to and then you know, tell us your address and we'll tell you where your 
uh, where the concerts are in so, your local so area. So that was the original idea. That was the original idea, and Songkick still is 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 pretty much that at, yeah. at its core, and that's the value proposition that the users sign up for. And yeah, because of course, actually, you know, just for anyone that doesn't know, can you just give the uh, yeah, the elevator pitch of yeah. what Songkick actually is? Uh, so Songkick is, uh, I think, you know, one of our taglines over the years was like, you know, a hundred thousand concerts in your pocket. So wherever you are in the world. Um, we know you and we know your music tastes and uh, we can tell you what concerts you're going to be interested in. And of course, when you, when you scratch underneath the surface, um, you know, there are many ways in which you can miss a concert, including missing the on sale, including the tickets selling out, including, uh, you know, just being hammered by the fees and deciding you can't afford that concert. So mm-hmm. there are lots of ways in which we, we got people to concerts and, and worked on getting to people, people to concerts. And the other thing is there were lots of ways we had to, figure out how to monetize the business because it was it was it was a difficult business to monetize yeah because the margin i guess by that point is very slim but let's not get onto that just yet mm. how big was the margin you pretended it was going to be when you first pitched investors well we didn't really know anything about the live music industry and luckily neither did a lot of our tech investors at the time so yeah. it was very much a uh, uh, so we, we started by joining my combinator so it was like the fifth or sixth batch of the Y Combinator ever done. Yeah. And Ian had been reading Paul Graham's essays and was like, let's apply to this thing. And I was like, cool, whatever. And it, the deadline was in four or five days or something like that. So we like, you know, did, did a couple all night. It's got this thing written and sent off. Um, got flown out to the Valley for an interview. I think we probably came across as like very intense young men and, uh, and they just trusted that we knew music perhaps and, and we are on. So a lot of our early investors and the angels we brought on were tech focused. And it, and it felt at the time like tech the tech wave was definitely going to disrupt live music so uh you know what was Ticketmaster? it was this terrible old website why do they charge all these fees and and because we didn't actually have the answers to some of those questions the pitch that songkick would be the solution was actually relatively plausible it was like you know we you know really it's about getting tickets in the in the hands of the fans that that care the most there's the whole issue of touts and people buying up hot tickets and selling them on for a for a for a like multiple of, of the face value and and it's the touts that take that margin. It's all a bit of a mess. Yeah. So it's it's it is still it's still a mess. You know, StubHub, Viagogo yeah, 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 yeah. as platforms for enabling professional touts to make you yeah, know yeah. millions of pounds. What do you think of what do you think of those kind of sites? Um, do you have no, a professional I mean, actually, and a personal point of view towards this? Well, look, the bottom line is Ticketmaster, Viagogo, StubHub, they're all, they're all fronts for the shenanigans of the um, bands, their promoters. Yeah, basically, they all, they all sit on top of this industry where it's all about fighting, scrapping for margin. And uh, so, you know, there's a very simple solution these days to touts. And Adele does it. She, we used Songkick to do it. She used our platform to do it. You issue digital tickets and you you offer a hundred percent refund if you can't come, and then you just and if you're you're in demand, then you know you sell your ticket to the next person in the queue. So there is just sim- there is simply a solution. So you'll ask yourself, why don't these bands do it? And it's because they make money. Yeah, okay. They make more margin and they make more money. And uh, the other thing is, the, it's not just the bands uh, driving up. Um, I mean, the bands try and take nearly all of the face value of a ticket. So that doesn't really leave anything for the venue, for the promoter, for uh, the ticket vendor. So it all starts getting added on as this extra fee. And so when you get an opportunity to take a take a ticket and sell it on for a big profit, mm. and you can do that at some sort of industrial scale, then all those players get in, get interested again. And they're like, oh, do you reckon we could just keep 20% of the inventory back? 
and sell it on StubHub like we're fans that can't go to the concert yeah, and then we'll yeah, split yeah. the profits five ways or whatever. So mm-hmm. it's it's just a bit locked in. It's a bit locked up. Okay. I mean, it's more than a bit. It's just locked we'll, up. We'll come on to that uh, model part, I guess, a little bit later. But so do you actually remember, just bring it back to this, do you remember your first pitch to investors? You're there on YC Demo Day. Like, what's, what's that like as an experience? Because, I mean, Paul Graham's British, but it's like a whole American cultish startup thing, right? It's a badge of honour. Yeah, the whole thing was a great experience. Uh, I think the pace at which the teams were working, and us included, um, on a three-month programme, and the sort of uh, the raising of the bar in terms of what we were actually going to set out to achieve yeah. was transformative for us and uh, really intense. I mean, I should mention at this point, so at some point in those three months, um, Ian's girl, then-girlfriend, now-wife, Michelle, joined us as the third co-founder. Yeah, okay. And then a fourth uh, Quasar co-founder, uh, Phil Cowens, who's now CTO at Nested. He he was with us by the end of the, of the Y Combinator summer. So right. we're kind of like this this team of four by the end of that summer. So the team of four finished Y Combinator. You come back full of high spirits, very excited to get cracking on. Then what? Where do you find your first office? Like, What's the next part of the... So like, we immediately, start? pretty immediately got investment from uh, Saul Klein, um, Saul and Robin Klein uh, here in London. And what was your experience with them like initially? Uh, so all very s- swift and easy? It was, or, yeah. I mean, yeah. we reached out to Saul, but we just found him online and he seemed to, you know, him and him and Robin just seemed to really have their, you know, their finger on the pulse. They'd already made a bunch of investments in companies that we, we'd already, we, we respected, like yeah. Moo and... Uh, mind candy and so it was a no-brainer to reach out to them and saw email back within like 10 minutes which is basically how he always is it's like bang yeah okay and he was like i'm in boston on friday let's meet at this hotel lobby and we talked him through it and he said great don't don't move to the valley come back to london oh we know i want to talk to you guys i want uh, you know i want to i want you to convince us to invest in you and we did and and it was all very smooth and saul's been like you know he's he's just a just a, a a great investor i think and you've never had any like you know issues. You're still friends. You still stay in contact with your investors. What's the yeah, deal? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't. I mean, they, they, you know, I think there's there's probably investor relationships. I I don't feel the need to invest in. Yeah. Um, because you know maybe you don't get on with them as well um, yeah. as as I do with with people like Saul. Okay, so take us through the first year of Songkick, right? So you've you've now got your money from like actually, in terms of journey, you've gone to YC. Doesn't get any better than that. You've got Robin and Saul Klein. Also doesn't get any better than that. Where's your first office? Who are your first employees? What's that first year look like? How did that growth kick in? So we just threw ourselves at it. Uh, we worked six days a week. We had crazy systems like we would, you know, you, you we had ro- rotating days off. So that there was always like six people in the office rather than like days when there was only five or something. Crazy stuff. We lived in this, uh, we worked out of this little flat in Spitalfields, which was awesome actually it was like pro- had a kitchen big main room a couple of bedrooms where we put interns and and like we i mean we had i think at peak we had like 25 people in that he means professionally well we always paid our interns no no i meant a couple of interns that you stick in, in the, the- bedrooms <laughs> <laughs> just straight yeah, in like, you like music thanks for the clarification <laughs> and and that was great that was proper startup feel and it felt like we would you know we were one of the only teams in london kind of operating like that it was yeah. quite it was, i mean there were there were ice you know we met many founders who over the years that that were living that story at the same time as we were, mm. but we weren't a community. We didn't really know each other, so it was it was it very much felt like we were like feeding off what was going on in the valley and kind of translating it to um, our little tiny one startup world in London. Yeah, fine. And and how quickly did you get you know traction? Uh, so we had 
we had launched within six months and had launched like another big version uh, of the site within another six months. And SEO immediately became like a a really big growth driver for us. We were, uh, you know, basically we had a, we had decent product and uh, we put a lot of, lot of effort into growth and, and also a lot of effort and effort into kind of um, being part of the, there was a lot of music blogs at the time. Mm -hmm. I think there still are loads of music blogs, but um, there were loads of loads of independent ones, like thousands of independent ones. So we put a lot of effort into building out those relationships. So um, they would embed our widgets in their blogs and all this kind of stuff. Um, and how many people did you have in the team? And like, what was your process for hiring people? What is it that made someone a song kick person? Who was in charge of that like cultural hiring aspect? So we, we, the three of us definitely shared it, but I led on the process. And I think that probably what, what happened was we didn't, we had an extremely high bar and, and a really rigorous filter. Which meant we'd never, we'd, you know, we'd, we'd rarely hire people that, that didn't work out. But if they didn't work out, it all happened fairly quickly. Right. As in, you know, as in like, we realised it was like, this isn't working. So, so is it fair you'd say you hired slowly and then fired quickly? Yeah, but we hired slowly because we weren't very good at hiring. That was right. actually, it wasn't that, you know, actually uh, we were running a great process, but our filter was just so, our bar was just so high we couldn't get the people. It was more like we, we had, our bar was super high and we were, I, I just wasn't very good at hiring. When you were testing like different areas for the product in the start, you know, where does business model come into this? Because obviously we've talked in the past and that was probably the most stressful part of your whole business because where do you get the margin in music? It's difficult to say. I mean, one one thing that, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to sound like we, we did much wrong in terms of our decision making around fund, fundraising because we were very successful at fundraising. We raised from brilliant investors and the business continued to, grow in its ambition and scope how, and how much did you raise in, in total well by the time so i left at sunkick after five years by that point we had raised about 20 million dollars yeah we continued to raise i think probably another 15 or so on our own and then we merged with crowd surge yeah. which when they took our name um and they themselves had raised something like 20 or 30 and then that that entity continued that that merged merged company continued to raise money over the last years as well so i think i i north of a hundred million dollars maybe not quite that much but like not far off yeah a lot of money and uh so so we so one thing we had was we had our initial our jumping off point which was itunes history slash like listing habits combined with where you live and the best concert database in the world um the ticketing links out of that which we made a cut from if we had an affiliate deal so we had this little engine of like growth Mm. uh great product and revenue then uh we started to build out loads and loads of rich content around past concerts as well um and we had this 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 idea to be the imdb of live music so every concert that's ever happened you could find the set list maybe even the the bootleg recording of it um and it sounds like a fabulous idea yeah that's really cool um and it was great for things like seo and, and and like a very very like engaged kind of nerdy user base um, but it wasn't, it turns out it wasn't like movies. Like there isn't the appetite for that kind of rich content going back to, you know, uh, one of Razor Light's gigs in 2007 or something right. like that. Okay, fine. <laughs> we kept the lights on through raising investment for several years. Sure. And but, I mean, we spent that money that. focused on 
great user experience and growth. Yeah. And we didn't focus as much on business model for, yeah. for several years. Now, when we did turn and on... And probably encouraged by your investors to do that. To yeah, it was, definitely, it was definitely like the style at the time was like grow fast and figure it out later. Yeah. But I think also we uh, we had more faith than we perhaps should have that there was going to be like at scale, there was a way to kind of, cr- you know, kind of increase margin. Mm. Uh, anyway, long story short, there isn't, there isn't, there wasn't as, as much money as we, we thought there was to be made. Um, so Songkick then had to begin a process of right how we're going to get how we're going to how we're going to blend in extra business models and, and new ways of, of making money to our you know great product that sends you off to buy a ticket like yeah. that, we needed to figure that that bit out so we started promoting our own concerts um, we had Songkick Detour which was like Kickstarter for concerts so if, if the, the band is not coming to your town or city you can basically prepay uh, you can pre buy a ticket and a critical mass that tips over and they come we ran several of those concerts they were really they were really cool and, awesome. and we found that for example when a when a band has like a, a you know they've, they've plotted like a 60 day tour over the course of five months or something they will actually have quite a lot of downtime where you can you can insert a, a kind of detour concert mm. um and they'll make more money everybody's happy the fans are, are pumped because they made it happen all this kind of stuff so, but but again promoters have I've got a pretty good handle on their local market and they're pretty good at, at plotting like how, how big a big a uh, venue they should book for a band and all this kind of stuff. So yeah. I guess we're not saying we weren't reinventing concert promotion. We were adding, we were supplementing bands at bands uh, revenue. So we weren't like critical to, to the industry still. Yeah. Um, and then uh, artist ticketing was the, was the sort of the big piece, which is actually where we ended up uh getting into a head-to-head with Ticketmaster. Right, And uh, so CrowdSurge, our sister company that we merged with, um, their their big insight was bands uh, are increasingly able, especially when they've got a bit of leverage, to uh, hold back ticket inventory for their tours so they can give to their fan clubs. And the bigger the band, the more percentage of their tour they can hold back, and then they need a platform for selling those tickets, and CrowdSurge was that platform. And they would take their, their small relatively small booking fee on top and it was pure margin and everybody was starting to make money again out of tickets and and even though these tours were locked down in Ticketmaster venues and and you know when we merged and 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 went for it you know we were doing really well we're getting massive tours um Adele was the biggest one we did um but uh Ticketmaster just shut us down in that in that area they were like we are not happy with this happening and uh and the lawsuit is ongoing I mean I think that the business itself suffered a lot from how Ticketmaster reacted to us growing and, and becoming a force, um, and you can't you can't get that back. Like it, they actually did like significant significant damage to the business. Do you read the board reports? Like anything like that? I do. I keep an eye on it. So, but only an eye on it. Like yeah. I, I basically left Songkick in 2012 yeah. after five years, yeah. um, and my involvement like very much dropped off a cliff. And your co-founders still there? No, Ian and Michelle were there until uh, 2006. 2016, 2017. Okay. Um, so we merged with with CrowdSurge, and then the their leadership team took the business forward. Right. Okay. Then we've been by that point we've been doing it. Well, Michelle and Ian have been doing it for nearly ten years. And it's... what is the highest high you can remember on your journey? I think it was it was incidents where you realise like even though you're only a startup, you've like penetrated through to the very top of. The industry like uh, this this is probably the most in the most sort of jarring moment for me in the early days of song it was was getting an email to my blackberry uh 
from this guy called, or the guy on the on the chain is a is a guy called Irving Azoff, who is like a, a power broker extreme in in live music. Like mm. he he represents artists, he manages them, promotes their tours. Like he's a real like he throws his weight around a lot and he'd got wind of us and was just like, um, we want to talk. We want to talk today. He's over in California and it was like 10 o'clock at night. And I was at Asda and uh, he was like, we want to talk. And, and we didn't obviously like jump on the phone. So it would have been an absolute disaster. Yeah. And what would we have said to this? Man? Yeah. We were like six month old startup with like nothing really to show for that in the early stage, apart from like a product with a few users. So, but it was that kind of moment where you, you I felt this like blooming kind of like uh, pride and sort of, like, because you were the thorn in the side for someone so powerful. Is that basically when but you were also like, had I was like, oh, six months ago, I didn't even, like, I wasn't even working on this business. It was almost like a, a moment of clarity, like what you can achieve with a startup that you can't mm. achieve in a normal job. What, like, what was your motivation for leaving the business in the first place? And I guess connected to that, did you suffer from burnout? Mm. Were you just mentally exhausted? What's the story? We've talked about this now, so I know, you know I, you know I suffered from burnout. So, but actually, in fairness, in my defence, coming back to it, I actually thought the burnout was from Silicon Milk Roundabout, not Sunkin. Yeah. Hey guys, this is Luke here, co-founder of Contour Space. Sorry to interrupt this awesome podcast, but I just wanted to tell you a bit more about us. We're a startup ourselves, helping awesome companies find amazing office spaces from start to finish. Whether you're looking for a couple of desks to your next big HQ. We take care of the whole process from start to finish and our service is completely free. Check us out on contour.space. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. 
Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. I mentioned earlier that uh, one of the reasons we succeeded in the early days, despite being first time founders, is we just used up everything we had hitting what we thought and actually what were good goals milestones like we made progress as a startup but it ragged us as founders mm-hmm. and uh and i think probably of the three founders i was also in a role where i was doing the coo role which was just simply not as like at the cold face with the users not out in the building meeting cool investors and potential partners and stuff like that i feel like there was a there was a point in time where you know i felt like i wasn't enjoying the work i was doing and that almost just from that point on, the wind just went out of my sails and, and the burnout caught up with me. I felt I just I was just ticking over and I was doing a, basically a, a really poor job. And Ian's my best friend. <clears throat> and so he, I don't, you know, I hesitate to say he like carried me for a period of time. But I think, to be honest, him and Michelle were probably like, oh, God, I wish Pete would like get his shit together, you know. And 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 that came to a head in an investor board meeting where, I said I was going to do something and I just hadn't done it. It was like pretty important piece of work to figure out whether we could make money off merch or trade e-commerce or something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I know it was important. And I know that, you know, 24 hours before the board meeting, Ian's like, we need to get that slide together about the, the e-commerce angle. And I was like, oh, I, did I just haven't done it. I haven't done it. So, they, you know, again, he's trying to cover for me. And then the investors just said, hey, look, what the hell is going, going on with Pete? Where's his, where's all his, where's his mojo gone? So that was a, a real shock to the system. Where all of us woke up and were like, right, okay, we've got to sort sort this out. You know, we've got to sort out what's going on here. And, you know, I did like immediately pull my britches up and, and start fixing it. And I also... Is that necessarily the right reaction? I think it was then, but I just wouldn't have wanted to leave at that point. You know, I mean, it was really a question of like, well, we have tons to do. And if we've got a COO co-founder who's not getting the job done, then we've got to deal with that. So yeah. it was like, I would rather at that point, I knew what I what I wanted to do is try and fix it. Um, but I also knew I needed time off and I needed like to start working fewer hours and things like that. So it was things like, you know, it was like I spent a lot of time with Ian and Michelle figuring out like what was taking up so much of my time. And, and, you know, we never, we'd never successfully hired an office manager and we just got our heads down and we're like, let's find an office manager that'll sort that out. Let's find a better account. Let's sort that stuff out. Um, and bit by bit, like my workload went down at the same time as I started to get the wind back in myself, stuff, and I was doing a better job. And that process took about a year, I, I would say. But over the course of that year, Ian and I had had, Ian and Michelle and I had, had loads of other chats. And um, there was this one chat where, you know, we were trying to figure out what my role going forward would be, what a broader COO role would look like now that I'd, sh- I'd, I'd sort of cleared away a lot of the kind of um, more grindy, low level stuff that I've been doing. I was talking, I was talking you know, with some significant genuine enthusiasm about doing a bit more traveling and going and doing some more partnerships and maybe, you know, maybe we need an office in the US and all this kind of stuff. And Ian, who is my best mate, just stopped me and was just like, I know you, I know you don't want to do that stuff. It's just, you're just setting yourself up for like, Mm. you know, I know you don't like traveling. I know you don't like all this stuff. You know, what are you doing? You don't have to be at this company anymore. And I was like, oh, I hadn't even thought of leaving. Okay all right, maybe I should leave. And it all just turned really on that, on that chat. And it was the absolutely the right call. Ian was spot on. And I, you know, like it was tough. I know for him to say that it was really tough for him to, you know, on some spectrum where you've got like, he fired me to, uh, 
I resigned. It was somewhere in the middle, right? Yeah. And um, we said that I was leaving because I wasn't, I wanted to do something else. I think we said I was going to be a politician. Um, and everyone was like, oh, cool. Yeah, wicked. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You've left your company at this point. Mm-hmm. What did you actually do? What was that first day, week like? You remember? Day I left, Katie, who was my uh, new girlfriend at that point, um, she cooked me like a lovely breakfast. And I'd, I was like, oh, wow. We're celebrating. I was like, well, yeah, we should, I should be celebrating. I was still caught up in this like mix of this, this mix of like just your confidence is low. The world looks grayer when you're burned out. You just generally don't take joy in, joy in stuff. And as well, I was still grappling with whether, you know, I was leaving under a cloud and whether I'd done a bad job and all this kind of stuff. So uh, it was re- that was actually quite striking. Kate was like, you, you haven't got to go to work anymore. Let's, let's have a lovely breakfast and celebrate. Here's some, here's, you know, let's have a glass of champers. And I was stood, and, it, and it took me a while to even get back to that kind of like forward facing mindset. So yeah. that was, that was quite striking. I remember that being really like difficult to sort of get my head, wrap my head around just how much I felt like just deadened by, by the experience of, mm. of frying myself so hard. Um, and I think it was months before I felt like, uh, started to get those ideas again about the future. Like, Oh, I might do this, might do that. And then there's you, I, I was quite manic is like, has an actual, you know, diagnosis. I wasn't that, but I was quite like, my mind was flitting around thinking, oh, I could do anything, I could do anything. I was quite yeah. excitable and all that stuff. So um, how long? Uh, are you in the wilderness so I, for a year? I had started in the roundabout, so I had to keep doing that every six months. And right. uh, and then over the course of the, the year after I left Songkick, it built a bit of a head of steam and I started working on it more and more. So what is Silicon Milk Roundabout, for those that don't know? So it's a jobs fair that we set up for developers to meet startups in London. And yeah. we set it up as Songkick because we couldn't find developers. And we especially couldn't get developers from big companies like Google and Amazon to join us because there wasn't really this idea that there was a, there wasn't yet, it was a very nascent idea that there was like a startup scene in London. So you would be coming, going to these to these people saying, do you want to join my company? And they'd be like, you are five people or you're like a 12 person startup and you expect me to leave Google to join you. Like, I don't even know what, really know what a startup is. Yeah. Um, so we, we clubbed together and from the very, from, from the word go, it was really successful little event. Um, and we did it in pubs and small venues around East London for the first year and then moved to the old Truman Brewery, which is this massive venue in East London. So I ran it as CEO, CEO, um, my first CEO job, uh, full time from about 2013, um, having launched it in 2011. And run it part time, just like spun up a little team and run an event and spun it all back down, and you know. And then we 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 got you know me and my co-founder Christiana we basically decided there's there's real. So we, I, Christiana started working on it by that point, and we we decided let's do this together. We'll co-found this business together and, and make it a proper business because that point it really just been a side project. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ian's a, a co-founder of it as well, and Songkick were were like sort of almost you know we treated them almost like the angel investor that had right. kind of got us off the ground. But we were entirely bootstrapped the whole time, and and so we grew it quite slowly, and we grew it to uh, a really good, a really good level, like well over a million dollars, a million pounds a year in, in revenue, and um, like really, really high gross profit on the events. Um, and we were kind of, you know, not really competing with anyone. We were, if I, if we I were set, right, right. We yeah, were set. I mean, I remember yeah. it. Sorry, just as someone yeah. who's like when I was twenty five. 
looking at tech jobs or tech companies I might want to go yeah. into or whatever else. And I just remember it was like the only thing that you could find. Yeah, it was. It's great, and it still is great. Yeah. Um, and we and we built something that was really special and and still is, and and, and you know we're all really proud of it. However, two thousand and sixteen, two thousand fifteen, mid fifteen through to mid sixteen. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just I just made a series of like crunching mistakes that basically drove the business through into administration, from which it was it was bought by by someone I know and and, and I really like and and he actually brought in some of the team that we'd we'd kind of had to make redundant because we'd 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 lost the business and, what, um, what was, and they was, now run it. What was the process of saying? You know, you've just said I made a bunch of decisions that were you know it crunchingly incorrect essentially mm, mm. did you know that at the time or did someone give you like an evaluation were people feeding this back to you at the time you know is there what was that process no like? no it's very much like hindsight i mean you obviously don't okay. run a company into the ground a perfectly good company into the ground on purpose um and uh you know I'm, i don't i don't mean that to sound flippant either like you basically we thought you know what we thought we wanted to do was grow it so we had this event that was running twice a year in a in our home market, London, where we knew everybody and we had a good reputation, and we thought, well, why if, if we can replicate this in one one more city or two more cities, why can't we replicate replicate it in like hundred cities? Like this could be to be a really fascinating business, so like a franchise model. Possibly, we actually decided the first one we would do was would be handmade, and we'd go, we'd go to we assessed cities like Berlin, Edinburgh, and we decided to go for broke and go and try and do it in New York. So you know we we. The, the, I'm not saying that was even a mistake, but one mistake we made was neither Cristiano and I or I moved there. Second is we didn't raise enough money to actually do the to do an international expansion of that scale. Mm-hmm. We went in too hard, too big. Maybe New York was just simply too big a city, but actually probably could have just started small like we did in London and, and built it up. Um, we overhired. We hired two senior people, i.e. we are overly senior people who we were paying too much to. Not They, they weren't. I mean, they were just senior. We just hired the wrong level of person, yeah. um, and the list the list will go on. And and I think one thing I've I've kind of discovered talking about it with people is that they're not actually that interested in the what. They're like the they're like the why is really important to me because you're an entrepreneur with all this experience. Like why did that? Why did you make those mistakes? But at the same time, you know, it's that's a really hard one to discuss because the whole point of building something that's exciting and fast growing is taking the risks and the risk either goes right or wrong. And if it goes right, you're a genius. And if it goes wrong. So I think the, the, the real why, why did I become such a bad CEO and, 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 and really mess things up was that me and my co-founder weren't getting on. And that fault line in the business and, and the, the, the very, very like primary thing we did wrong was didn't deal with that. I mean, but you seem incredibly uh, aware of it all, and you've obviously had time to reflect. But then, have you had therapy? Or yeah, I've had. I've had. Uh, I mean, I think therapy is brilliant. Yeah, I, I think therapy is brilliant. I think talking generally is brilliant. Like, I think being trying to just like thrash this out with people is is really important. And uh, and I have like my my wife Katie is is brilliant um, at you know she's like I mean she's. She's very honest and, and really smart, so I don't have to. Uh, I don't have to worry about 
like having my thoughts so sorted out with yeah. her when I'm talking stuff through, she'll often help me sort them out for me. Okay. And be like, oh, well, you know, that's like that thing you said or whatever. So I've, I feel like I've got good people around me. And yeah, I do, I do really, I, I really take a lot from, from therapy. I used to do it um, like every week. And I actually haven't, haven't been doing therapy recently. I'll probably start it again at some point. I think one thing you get, one of the main things I get from it is I have all these little behaviours that I would rather change. And if you don't have therapy or I find if I don't take myself to a room with a person whose job it is to help me change those behaviors then I'll miss all the little things that would have added up and 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 helped mm. um, and crucially actually I wasn't having therapy during that whole period I'd, my, I'd quit my therapist because I decided I didn't love him and um, I wasn't getting as much as I wanted from that therapist and then I just didn't get another one and that ran for the six months where most of the the key bad decisions were made Okay, super relevant. Yep. Uh, this section is very kindly sponsored by Calm.com. Great. The meditation app. Also friends with Michael, I believe, mm-hmm. aren't you? Yeah. So I guess the best... Who isn't friends with Michael? Everyone's friends with Michael, it's true. He is the nicest man in the world. Um, and that's also why he was kind enough to help sponsor this, this section of the podcast, which is all on... Uh, lessons, mistakes, really like delving deeper into the person and how you spend your time, really. So just starting there, what does a typical day look like for Pete? So my weekends tend to be pretty chilled out. Um, I've got a dog to walk. I've got, you know, food to cook um, and uh, hopefully friends to see. And uh, I, I used to be quite, I used to be quite rowdy and I think I've got less rowdy. So during the week, if I'm working, then... You know, I'm, I get, I really enjoy my work. I really enjoy, so at the moment I advise startups and, and, and I don't just advise them. I'd, I, I prefer to just jump in and help. So I'd rather do two, three days a week for a few months rather than uh, float above like the startup kind of advising one of the senior teams. So um, interim COO roles, uh, just like jumping in, helping with marketing, whatever needs doing. And do you think you are going to start another business? Is that an ambition, something you think of? There's yeah, a, a very confident nod there. So. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, you know, as as a as a career choice, it would be crazy not to because of the kind of uh, the pace at which you can build uh, reputation and wealth mm. and done, done right, that is. So I think there aren't that many opportunities in this world to create that level of kind of personal, but or that's that's the that kind of gradient of personal trajectory and family trajectory for you and your family. But the other thing is, I really love it, and uh, you know, I think it would be a waste of the learnings and mistakes to to turn my back on it. Um, so, I've, but but that all of that said, I'm not in a massive rush, and I think uh, it could be years till I till I do it. Did you have any mentors help you along the way? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, I've. Obviously, had all the figures involved in Songkick either at investor or senior team levels. So, uh, you know, Ian, Michelle, um, uh, and the the other senior team members on on the Songkick management team. Um, I had a brilliant mentor who's now uh, CTO at Moo called Mary Mary Williams. Oh, she's um, supposed to be amazing. Oh, she her name pops mate, up everywhere. Oh, she is top notch, and she's she's like this incredibly smart person who has uh spent the time you know time in her 20s and 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 early 30s that we spent in all sorts of ways she 
focus that intellectual energy on becoming a great manager. And she is a phenomenal people manager and people thinker, like just amazing. So having that was, was, was wicked. She, she coached us, me and Christiana through, through Milk Roundabout and, um, and improved our management skills and just general thinking around Mm -hmm. running a team immeasurably. Coming back to the, um, the balance, as you've just called it, do you meditate? I do not. Did you do it for a period? Have you ever been tempted? Uh, I've I've tried it several times and uh, immediately kind of um, like learned and benefited from it. Um, The handful of times I've I've tried it for for any length of time. And then I did yoga for for quite a long, long time, only once, twice a week. But again, just felt like, you know, cleansed and, and really pretty like pretty different after a session of yoga. So I don't really know why I haven't managed to integrate it um, into my life. Something that I do do is walk my dog a lot, which is, I think, not... It's, it is pretty meditative. Mm-hmm. It's, they, they call you back into the moment a lot because they'll come over with, like, a stick or they'll find something disgusting in a hedge. You know, oh, God, bloody <laughs> hell. So you never really, like, lose you lose yourself in thoughts, but you are doing, like, an extended period of time when you're kind of getting recalled back to the moment a lot. What is the best lesson you've learned along the way that you can share with our listeners? I think the thing I didn't get when I was a first-time founder was uh, that you have to just basically reinvent yourself every six months. You have to be constantly learning what your job is supposed to be and figuring out how the hell you're supposed to do that. And I think I thought I could just be me and work super hard and I'd manage to get the job done. But in the end, you just burn out and you don't do a great job. But do you mean... Skill up wise, or do you yeah, mean personality skill up, as well? Uh, skill up, like make changes in your life. Just you need, actually need to like, just change how you are working and and learning crazy amounts during the period that you're running a startup. If you're a first time founder, and you, I think you actually get that until later on in the cycle as a first time founder. You only, I mean, I, I certainly didn't have, uh, I didn't figure that out right for two or three years. And what is the best advice you could give looking back now? Yeah, I would just say don't work as hard. If I was if I was saying something to myself in 2007, I'd say just don't work as hard. Like you didn't work smarter, learn learn from people who've done it before and just don't default to thinking extra hours equals closer to your goals. What is next for Pete? What space really interests you? I know you haven't necessarily like thought about this, but in the song kick days when you had your thousands of ideas down, do you have a notebook? Do you have something where you're storing ideas and potential things? I get, that you might hung, I get hung up on an idea and think about it loads, and then eventually, usually, hopefully, uh, I lose I lose like the kind of desire to do it, um, and that and that will that will happen at some point, and then I'll just do that idea. There'll be an idea that right. I, get, I can't get out of my head. Um, but one thing that I've been thinking quite a lot about since uh, last summer is that what has been transformative for me over the years was doing some secondary share sale through at Songkick Series B. Mm-hmm. So we, the three founders, got about three hundred and fifty thousand pounds each. Um, by selling a little bit of our stock when Sequoia invested in the company, and 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 that is much more common in the valley than it is here. I don't, I, I actually ask people, but um, I suspect a lot of entrepreneurs don't don't get the chance to do that here in London. But it has effectively meant I could leave Sunkick, not have to worry about money. I could leave Milk Roundabout, not have to worry about money. I'm not saying I'm a rich man, but that small amount of secondary 
when we'd created all of this millions of pounds of value that people were pumping, you know, that we were making a real play yeah, at a big industry, we, we, it was absolutely right we got part of that, even a little bit of it. So that was transformative. And there's funds in the States that go around post-Series A, post-Series B or at Series A or B and basically jump in and say, look, we want to buy some of the founder's stock. The effect of that is either they get their hands on some founder stock from a really good company or the existing investors step in and, and exercise their right of first refusal and end up buying secondary stock off the founders. So it's a, it's a win for the founders. It's like a win often for the fund. Um, and it's just such a massive win for the ecosystem because these founders, if their startups fail or they leave their startups, they don't have to go and get a job and, and start. Um, so I think that should exist in the UK at some point. I think somebody should do it. Um, when did you know you were onto something with Sunkick? I think it was to how much uh, our early users loved the product, and uh, that was that was also just really really exciting to have started this thing without really no idea how to build a tech startup, just running on instinct and learning from you know the early guys we had like Paul Graham and the other teams on Y Combinator, getting this thing launched, and then just people are like, oh my god, I love Songkick so much, it's great, and they're just all over the world. That was really 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 exciting. I can't I can't look back on it other than still feel that excitement of like being 25 and having thousands of people suddenly saying, this is great that you built this. So it's more the international aspect of like getting it from yeah, the countries. And I think the anonymity, like these users, we had no idea who they were and why, where they were coming from, how they were finding us. And they were just like pumped to have found us and, uh, and using us and, and buying tickets and all this stuff that I don't think you can get from a bricks and mortar business. So I was, that was pretty cool. What's the most daring thing you did on your journey? So uh, friends who have jobs say, oh, it's really brave that you are an entrepreneur. I think it's really brave. Like, you you know, you, you, how, how do you do it? Like, how do you live with the uncertainty and all that stuff? And I actually think that uh, probably uh, I'm, we, I just calibrated that a little bit differently where the horizon can be six, 12 months. And we are fine with that. So, okay, well, this startup, I'm gonna, I know I'm going to be doing this job for six months, 12 months. The end of which, maybe, hopefully, it's all going to be fine. But if it's not fine, I'll probably just get another job or I'll do something else. And I feel like that that is actually, maybe that calibration just being slightly off is what allows you to exist in this state where objectively, apparently, you're being quite bold. In truth, I think maybe we just are not as scared of uh, not having a job as other people would be. So I'm not sure I've answered the question. Yeah. I think I'm maybe just not. Well, most daring. So you're basically saying that the most daring thing you ever did is exist in this in this <laughs> yeah. place that other people yeah. find scary. Yeah. Okay. But so I guess you don't really find anything daring because it's just your natural state. Maybe I definitely am not a brave man about say heights. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, what? Um, oh yeah. So it, there's an argument to say no one really achieves success on their own. So who has helped you on your journey that deserves a massive shout out? Oh man. I'm gonna, I just love my dad. <laughs> I really mean that. So I worked for him when I first left uni and he's an entrepreneur and, and, you know, I could see what it took to build a successful business. I work with him now as uh, somebody who's kind of looped back through two of my own companies. And now I work with him as a peer and that's just a really special thing. And, uh, and having worked with my dad for like years of my life now, um, I think that is just a really special relationship, which, uh, which I'm proud to have, to have made a success of in the way that we have professionally. So um, he'll probably listen to this and he'll probably tear up hearing that, and rightly so, because I love the old guy. 
Okay, yeah, final question then. What's changed about you from when you started to who you are now? I have I've just simply grown up in loads of ways. Like I just I am more responsible, I am more careful with people around me, I am more careful with myself and just generally I'm more I'm just less reckless with all of those elements of my life. Um, and I think that's, I think to an extent that's growing up. I think I'm also just not as uh, distractible and just generally excitable and, and ready to focus on the next bright, shiny thing. All of which is almost like a, a sort of deflating of, of like a ball of energy that, that perhaps I used to be that, um, that, that, you know, ultimately wasn't necessarily the kind of, kind of way to live. Exactly. Yeah. You've been listening to a fantastic podcast interview in a canal boat with the artist formerly known as Prince, a.k.a. Pete Finlay, formerly known as Pete Smith of Songkick. So thank you very much for your time, Pete. Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Rich. Pleasure. And also thank you to your lovely dog. Yeah, he's grumbling away under the table. You've been been good, pilot. (laughs) Thank you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. Be able to describe your business in one sentence. Be really clear about it. And if you can't do that, ask yourself why you can't do that. You cannot build a successful business without knowing how much cash you've got in the bank. That was next week's guest with a royal honour in the form of Karen Jones, CBE, the co-founder of Café Rouge and the Pelican Group that she sold for a reported £133 million. She's a no-nonsense, direct and experienced founder, mum, wife and board member of many impressive companies you'll know well, including ASOS. Just like any real Brit, though, her passion is pubs. She's owned a lot of them, so if you're into food, drink and hospitality, next week's story is the one for you, so check it out. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to us on iTunes or Spotify. Just search for Secret Leaders. You can also check out our website at secretleaders.com for show notes and behind the scenes of each interview. Hi, I'm Simon LaFosse, the founder of LaFosse Associates. We're a young, high-growth and co-owned business and we're experts in attracting talent. If you want to build a great team or you just want advice, please get in touch. We run free seminars and we'd love to see you there. Thanks for your time. This episode was hosted by Dan Murray, produced by me, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton at Lower Street Media, and if you're hearing this, that's probably thanks to Jennifer Osman, our marketing whiz from Canada.